Shame is a powerful emotion. Every time he thought about that night, his head would droop, and every fiber of his being just wanted to run away from it all and hide. He just wanted to go back to when life wasn't so complicated, to when he wasn't such a failure. He knew how to fish. Perhaps if he just went back to that, he could leave everything behind him, but it was hard to forget that horrid night. Even the wafting smell from a charcoal fire in the distance would bring back a sudden flood of memories, and he would shake his head in toxic shame. He could still picture the scene by that fire in the courtyard. He could still hear their questions ringing in his ears. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? He could still feel the fear in his heart. But he couldn't change what he had said. He'd been so confident before. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Even if all these other guys fall away, I never will. But when everything was on the line that fateful night, when push came to shove, he fell flat on his face. If only he could go back and do it all over again. If only he could have been stronger. If only he could go back and erase those three curse-filled denials of his Lord and Savior. But he couldn't. If only the rooster hadn't crowed and reminded him that Jesus had already predicted that he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. Peter could hardly live with himself after that night. Matthew tells us he went out and wept bitterly. How do you pick up the pieces when you've failed so badly? Jesus had appeared to disciples twice now since that night of Peter's failure and after his resurrection. One on the evening of his resurrection when the disciples were all gathered together, doors locked for fear of the Jewish authorities. That was the first time. And then again, eight days later, Jesus appeared to them again. That's when Jesus had Thomas feel the the nail scars in his hand and the place where the, the spear had pierced his side. Peter was there both times. Peter stood in the same room with Jesus. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to speculate that Peter probably had a hard time looking Jesus in the eye. Both times there was an elephant in the room, a knot in Peter's stomach, a lump in his throat, overwhelming shame in his heart. Peter wanted to bring it up, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And as he hung his head staring at his sandals, he couldn't help but wonder, What must Jesus think of me now? What must Jesus think of me now? Shame is a powerful emotion. How many of you can relate with Peter? There's something you've done in your past that you can't undo. You've hurt somebody you love. You have regrets. The voices in your mind are anything but kind. You beat yourself up. You struggle with toxic shame. You can't help but wonder, what must Jesus think of me now? What must Jesus think of me now? If that's you or you can relate with it just a little bit, you're going to be very encouraged by our text of Scripture this morning as we turn to John chapter 21 today. Well, welcome to Fellowship National. My name is Mark Irving, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us 
today. Those of you who've been with us know that we have been on a long journey through the beautiful pages of the Gospel of John, an excellently written narrative from an artist's pen as he paints a beautiful picture of the words and the works of Jesus to reveal to us his identity as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we come to the last chapter today. We're not going to finish the book. We're going to save just a little bit for next week. And as is our custom when we wrap up a sermon series like this, We're not going to take the whole time next week to exposit the text. We're actually going to hand the microphone to you and give you a chance to respond and share how how this book has impacted your life. How has it shaped you? How has it strengthened your belief in Jesus? Remember, that's John's goal. I've written these things that you may what? Believe. Believe, and all of us still are in the process of believing. You might call yourself a believer, but I guarantee you there's corners of your heart where you're still struggling to believe. And growing as a disciple of Jesus is is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. And I know that getting up and sharing what you your thoughts or what you've learned in front of other people is is some of y'all's worst nightmare. Okay, how many of you hate that? Okay, my wife raised her hand. Um, <laughs> Lee raised his wife's hands for her. Um, <laughs> some of us struggle, myself included, with getting up and talking in front of you. That's why I have these. That's why I have these. I write out my thoughts because it makes me a lot more comfortable. And if that makes you more comfortable next week in sharing your thoughts, I want to encourage you this morning. Sit down, flip through the pages of the Gospel of John. Remember where we've been. Remember where we've walked in this sermon series. Write down just a couple of thoughts. Write it out on a three-by-five card. Bring that next week. And during the second half of the, the message time, we're going to hand you a microphone. You'll be able to share and encourage the rest of the body with what you've learned and how you've been shaped by our time in this book. Before we dive into our text today, let's talk to the author, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for men like John who are faithful to write down accounts of the words and the works of Jesus. Thank you for uh, moving him along by your Holy Spirit, guiding him with just the right words to say, just the right details to include. And we've been so encouraged by the picture that's painted in this book. And as we look at chapter 21 today, Father, remind us of the truth of your mercy and of your grace and your your pursuit of sinners like me, of sinners like all of us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This last chapter of John forms really an epilogue of sorts to the book. You know, John has already covered the big stuff, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's this one loose end that he still needs to tie up. And that's the relationship between Jesus and Peter. A loose end that reveals the redeeming love of Jesus and also should be a a significant encouragement to you if you've ever failed in life, let down the people that you've loved, or struggled with shame. We'll be drawing three timeless truths for shame-filled hearts out of our text this morning. So if you're taking notes, just write that little phrase at the top of your notes page. Three timeless truths for shame-filled hearts. And I'd like to acknowledge right at the beginning 
that the phrasing of these truths is not original with me. A former student of mine, um, I recently listened to a message he preached on this passage, and there are a few things he said in his sermon. I was like, oh man, that's good. That's good. I don't think I can say it better than that. And so it's my philosophy. If somebody says something better than you could ever say it, just cite your source. His name's Philip Miller, and use those words. Now, I'm going to be framing things up quite a bit differently than he, does with, he did with his message, but I'm going to take some three phrases that he used and share them with you today. Let's dive in together with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So John sets the scene for this story, this this loose end he's tying up. And where is it? It's back up north. So the disciples have now left Jerusalem. They've gone back north to Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias. That's just another name for the the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is a city on the, the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the setting here. They're going back home, probably to Capernaum or near there. And Peter announces back at his old stomping grounds that he's going to go fishing. And six other disciples say, okay, we'll go with you. We'll follow you, Peter. Now remember, what did Peter and the other, many of the other disciples do before Jesus called them to follow him? What did they do? Yeah, they were fishermen. That was their, their vocation. That was their trade. Peter had left fishing to follow Jesus, and now... What has he announced that he's going to go back and do? Fish, his old vocation. He obviously has some leadership skills. How do I know? Six other guys say, we'll go with you. Six other guys are following him in his plan. And without this context, it might seem on the surface that deciding to go fishing is just a relaxing diversion, a weekend getaway. (laughs) But that's not the case here. We need to see here in the text that this isn't a relaxing moment for Peter. This is a relapsing moment for Peter. Haunted by the shame of his failure, Peter is going back to his comfort zone. He's going back to his old way of life. He's going back to fishing where at least he knew what to do. Where at least he had been a success or somewhat of a success before falling flat on his face in following Jesus. But the irony here is that Peter now fails at what? Fishing. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Zilch, nada, zero, nothing. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple who Jesus loved, that's who? That's our author, John. The disciple who Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. That's kind of funny. I usually take my clothes off to go swimming, but Peter like, puts on his outer garments, and he dives in and starts swimming towards shore. Verse 8, The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For were they, not, they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I just love this scene. 
The sun was just beginning to come up. Peter and the other six disciples that were with him are utterly exhausted. Keep in mind, they've been working all night, throwing that net, dragging it in, throwing the net, dragging it in. Who knows how many hundreds of times they had repeated that task and come up with nothing. And then, just as the sun is, is starting to peek up over the horizon, some random chipper guy on the shore shows up and says, Hey, guys, have you caught anything? How are you going to feel? You've worked your fingers to the bone all night. This guy calls out, have you caught anything? And they answer him, no. There was probably frustration and annoyance in their voice. And he had the audacity to call them children. Did you catch that tech? Catch that little detail? Children, have you caught anything? No. Get lost, you condescending. Bleep, bleep, bleep. And then this chipper early riser has the audacity to tell them how to do their job. Hey, try throwing your net on the other side. You know, it's surprising that they actually try it. But when they do, they catch such a large quantity of fish that all seven of them can't even drag it in. And John immediately recognizes that this random guy is someone they know and someone they love. They recognize it's Jesus. It's the Lord, John says. Now, how on earth would he know that? They're a hundred yards out. It's still dark. How can, they t- how can John see that it's Jesus? Well, I don't think he's seeing it. I think he just knows it. Why? Because he's having a deja vu moment. This has happened before. We read about it in Luke chapter 5. And it's the story of when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. In a strikingly similar scene, probably at or very near the spot that they're fishing right now along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And John had been there to witness it. Let's read it. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 11. And when he had finished speaking, that's Jesus, he said to Simon, that's Peter's real name, okay? Peter is just a nickname that means rock, a nickname that Jesus gave to him because there were two Simons in the disciple group said to Simon, put out into, deep, into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. Sound familiar? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were who? James and John, our author, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. So you see what Jesus is doing here? It's beautiful. He's taking Peter back to the very beginning. He's setting things up. He's setting the scene so that Peter can have a do-over. So that Peter can have a second chance. It's the same lake. It's the same catchless night of fishing. It's the same miracle that convinced Peter to follow him in the first place. And once again, we will see Jesus call Peter to leave fishing and to follow. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. It's a lot of fish. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there's two significant details that are easy to miss in the verses that we just read. And I want to take my, my flashlight as your tour guide through Scripture and shine them right on those details. And the first one is in verse 9. In verse 9. And it's about the fire that Jesus had prepared. Not just any fire, but a charcoal fire. The Greek word for charcoal fire here is only used twice in all of Scripture. It's used here in John chapter 21. And you know where else it's used? John chapter 18. What, ha- what was happening in John chapter 18? Anybody remember? Well, let me refresh your memory. Let's go back to John chapter 18, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, the door of the courtyard to Caiaphas's house, the high priest, you were not are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not, Peter. Now, now the servants and officers had made what? A charcoal fire. That's the only other time this Greek word is used in all of the New Testament. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself, and then Peter goes on to do what? To deny Jesus two more times. And then the rooster crows. So Jesus is not only taking Peter back to the spot on the beach where he initially called him to follow him, he's added an element which would have instantly reminded Peter of the moment of his epic failure in following him, the moment when Peter denied Jesus around the same type of charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard. This is intentional, not coincidental. Secondly, there's another detail I want to shine my flashlight on as your tour guide this morning. And that's in verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Is this ringing any bells for you in our narrative? Where else has Jesus taken bread and fish and given it to his disciples to eat by the Sea of Galilee? Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Feeding the 5,000. John chapter 6. And it's the same language, same Greek words for, for bread and fish, and they're fairly unique words for both. And they come up here again. What, what is John doing? He's intentionally making a connection for us, the readers of his narrative. Hey, think back to John chapter 6 and what was going on there. This crowd of 5,000 hungry people are approaching Jesus. And Jesus takes one of his disciples off to the side, Andrew, and says to him, Hey, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people to eat? Andrew kind of gets panicked, goes back to the other disciples, and likely tells him, Jesus is expecting us to feed all these people. And then John tells us in the text in John chapter 6, Jesus asked them this to test them because he already had in mind what he was going to do. This was a central moment in the training of the 12 that John is making a connection with. It's the moment in his ministry where Jesus taught his disciples that even when they were inadequate for a task, he wasn't. Even when they don't have what it takes, he's all sufficient. 
he could multiply the bread and the fish when they didn't have the resources. When they were insufficient, he was still all-sufficient and could use them, his disciples, to feed the multitudes. Now let me ask you a question. Who among the disciples gathered here around this charcoal fire feels the most inadequate, feels the most like a failure, feels the most insufficient this moment on the beach? Our boy Peter. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's masterfully setting the table of this very intentional scene, bringing together three things, a miraculous catch of fish beside a charcoal fire, feeding them bread and fish. He's bringing together three watershed moments in the life of Peter. One, his initial call to follow beside the beach. Two, his failure in following Jesus beside the charcoal fire. And three, a reminder of the lesson that when we are inadequate and insufficient as disciples, he is more than enough and can still use us to do his work in the world, still use us to accomplish his mission, accomplish the impossible. And it's abundantly clear that Jesus is bringing all of this together and setting the scene up for specifically for one, pe- one person. I almost said his name because What's his name? Peter. He's doing it for Peter. Peter may have given up on himself, but Jesus hasn't given up on him. Peter wanted to go back to fishing, but Jesus isn't done with Peter. He wants him to follow him and do his work in the world. He's pursuing him, and he's about to lovingly press in on Peter's shame. And right here is timeless truth number one for shame-filled hearts. Say this out loud with me. Even when we give up on ourselves, Jesus never gives up on us. Say that one more time. Even when we give up on ourselves, Jesus never gives up on us. And just like he pursued Peter here, he will continue to pursue you no matter what you've done or where you've been. Why? Because just like he loved Peter, he loves you. And he wants to use you in spite of yourself and in the midst of your brokenness. Even when we give up on ourselves, Jesus never gives up on us. Well, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to Peter. And the two previous times, Peter has avoided the elephant in the room, hasn't he? But now Jesus, in his mercy, in his love, in his pursuit of Peter, brings it up so that Peter can begin to heal from his shame. Let's read on verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this gets to the point of why Jesus has set this scene. He says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. You know, this is a rather strange question from Jesus, isn't it? Do you love me more than these? More than what, Jesus? Most commentators agree that, that this should probably be translated, or, well, not translated, but expanded to say, Peter, do you love me more than these other guys love me? That's likely who Jesus was gesturing to when he said this. Now, why would Jesus ask a question like that? Awkward. Think of you one of the other disciples. <laughs> Well, let's chew on this. Let's, let's think about this for a minute. As we read through the Gospels, we, we find that Peter is the guy who's always trying to come out on top, isn't he? 
He was part of the bickering among the disciples over which one of them would be considered the greatest. He was the one who compared himself over and above the other disciples by telling Jesus, even if these guys fall away, I never will. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. So, so Peter always considered himself uniquely special, a, a cut above the rest of the disciples, uniquely loyal to Jesus. Now think about it. How would Peter have answered this question just a few weeks earlier before the incident at the charcoal fire? Do you love me more than these other guys, Peter? You better believe it, Jesus. You know that I love you more than these other guys. But Peter doesn't answer the question that way now, does he? Jesus doesn't answer the question the way Jesus asks it here. He does, Peter doesn't answer it in comparison to anyone else. Peter simply answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What does this reveal? What does this tell us? It shows us two things. First, Jesus is getting straight to the point beside this charcoal fire. He's getting to the root of Peter's failure, his pride, his egotistical self-reliance. Second thing it shows us is that Peter has more self-awareness and humility now. He's been broken. He's been humbled. This shows us that in allowing Peter to go through the experience of falling flat on his face, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. In putting Peter in a position where he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, Jesus was going after Peter's besetting sin. Jesus was removing his his pride, crushing his cockiness, confronting his self-reliance. Jesus knew that Peter needed to get over himself before he could be trusted with leading his church and feeding his sheep. But now that Peter has been humbled, that's precisely what Jesus is asking Peter to do. Feed my lambs. Jesus, the good shepherd, is now commissioning Peter as his under-shepherd. Jesus has no intention of letting Peter wallow in his shame. He has every intention to restore Peter, to use Peter again. Simon, Peter, the rock. That's what his nickname means, the rock. To build his church. And we know from church history that Peter will become a lead figure in the early church. And right here is timeless truth number two for shame-filled hearts. Say this out loud with me. Brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. One more time. Brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. You know, it's ironic when Peter felt most confident, he was actually least useful. When he felt strong, he was actually weak. But when Peter came face to face with his inadequacy and failure, that's when Jesus was most ready to use him to do his work in the world and shepherd his flock. Until Peter was humbled, he wasn't ready to lead. Until Peter knew he was inadequate, he wasn't qualified to serve. Until Peter was broken, he was not able to be used. Because brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. You know, it's a common misconception that Jesus was a woodworker because of the way the Greek word tekton is translated in our English um, translations in Mark chapter 6, verse 3 where it says that Jesus was a tecton, a carpenter is how it's normally translated. And when we think of car- carpentry, we, we think of wood. But the Greek word for te- tecton simply means builder. 
It's where we get our word architect, chief builder. Now, if you were to go to Israel today and visit any archaeological site there, you'll notice something. Nothing's made of wood. The walls, the streets, <laughs> the structures are all made of one material. You know what it is? Stone, rock. So the ancient houses, streets, everything's built of rock. So if Jesus is a tecton in that culture, what is he? Most likely a stonemason. A stonemason, not a woodworker. Well, why do I mention this? Well, Jesus was likely very accustomed and skilled at chiseling rocks to make them ready for building things, removing the proud surfaces on them to make them level and ready to be useful. Before Jesus could use Peter, the rock, he had to chisel him to remove the pride. In the words of A.W. Tozer, it's doubtful that God can use a person greatly until he's wounded them deeply. And on this rock, this broken, chiseled by the hands of the stonemason rock, Peter, Jesus, built his church. Isn't that gracious? Because brokenness is a prerequisite to usefulness. Verse 16. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know my failure. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep sheep. How many times did Jesus deny Peter? I mean, sorry, other way around. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus have Peter reaffirm his love and commission him to take care of his sheep? Three. This is significant. This is significant. Do you see it? Do you see it? What's Jesus doing here? You know, the significance of this is not lost on Peter. That's why he was grieved by this threefold questioning this threefold repetition, it's likely at this point that Peter realized exactly what Jesus was doing. And it cut him to the heart. He simultaneously felt the depth of his depravity, the depth of his inadequacy, the depth of his sin, and yet at the same time, the overwhelming mercy and grace of his master. It all came together for him in this moment. It's beautiful. What we have here is a purposeful and loving threefold restoration and recommissioning of Peter in spite of his threefold failure. What Peter in his shame thought could not be undone, Jesus is now undoing. What Peter thought, when Peter thought that he was damaged goods and couldn't be used, I better just go back to fishing. Jesus saw as the rock that he, on, upon which he would build his church now that he's chiseled a little bit of the pride off of it. Jesus restores him, brings him back to usefulness. Even when we give up on ourselves, Jesus never gives up on us. Brokenness is a prerequisite to usefulness. And thirdly, say this out loud with me. There is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. Say that louder like you believe it. 
There is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. But my friends, his mercy is more. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Verse 18. Jesus continues addressing Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me, Peter. As the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, now Jesus is calling the under-shepherd to do the same thing. He's revealing to Peter, whom he's just reinstated and recommissioned as his under-shepherd. He's showing Peter that he too must face a hostile death like himself, like his master. History tells us that Peter did just that. A little over 30 years from this scene in AD 64, Peter was crucified in Rome by the emperor Nero. Tradition also tells us that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his master, as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In these last verses of our passage this morning, Jesus is telling Peter that in order to follow him, Peter must be willing to do what? To die for him. As the band comes back up, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Jesus is giving Peter a second chance to be the guy he so desperately wanted to be. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll die for you, Jesus. Even if these other guys fall away, I never will. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus is giving Peter a second chance. And now Peter will follow through. Not because of his pride, not because of his ego, not because of his own self-confidence, but because the love and mercy of Jesus has chiseled off the rough edges of his character made him into a servant-hearted, humble leader. A rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Peter's now useful because the pride has been chiseled away. And Jesus gives him a second chance to follow him to the cross. What mercy, what grace... And if Jesus can use Peter, then he can use the likes of me. He can use the likes of you to do his work in the world, to tend to his sheep, to be his under-shepherd. It doesn't matter where you've been, 
It doesn't matter what you've done because say these out loud with me. Even when we give up on ourselves, Jesus never gives up on us. Two, say that loud. Brokenness is a prerequisite to usefulness. And three, there's more mercy in Jesus than sin.